Well, the Dongan Charter is the oldest existing charter still in use in the U.S. By the way, if you don't know, a charter is a founding document that states the rights and responsibilities of an organization or a civic entity. And the Dongan Charter is the charter for the city of Albany, New York. Again, it's the oldest active charter in the U.S., having been written by and ratified by Governor Dongan back in 1686. 1686. That's pretty amazing. 1686 is over 100 years before the U.S. Constitution. It's over 90 years before the Declaration of Independence, if my dates are correct. So just appreciate its flexibility and its utility to exist and function in such different eras with such different national political circumstances over 350 years. Now, for us living in Albuquerque, a charter in Albany, New York, probably doesn't have a ton of relevance. But if we had been born and raised in Albany, we would have lived within this civic framework of the Dongan Charter our whole lives. Even if we hadn't been aware of the Dongan Charter or its relevance for us, aware of it or not, the Dongan Charter is what's behind civil life there. Well, there is a charter, another charter, a charter of sorts that is much older than the Dongan Charter. It's still very much active and relevant today. And it has been utilized and applied in different countries, in different centuries, different cultures. And if you're a Christian, this charter I speak of has massive relevance for you, even if you're not aware of it. I'm talking about the charter that Jesus laid out for the church in Matthew 16. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 16. We've been studying the book of Matthew together as a church, and we come to verses today that really lay out a charter for the church. Jesus doesn't use that language, a charter, but really that's what it is. That's what's going on. If you were with us last week, remember that we left off in the middle of a conversation between Jesus and Peter. Jesus asked the disciples a couple of questions. Who do people say that I am, and who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up for the group and gave a really good answer. Jesus affirmed it, and that's where we stopped last week with verse 17 of Matthew 16. But as I said then, as you can see now, as you look down, the conversation goes on in verses 18, and it goes on with such power-packed, important stuff that we needed to leave the next few verses for our attention this week. So we'll kind of stagger up the verses that we're covering this week and last week. We'll be going back over the confession that Peter made in verse 16 before we get to really the charter of the church 
laid out in verses 18 and following. My prayer for us, especially for those of us who have come to confess Jesus as the Christ, our Savior, my prayer is that we would grow in understanding and living, living out this charter with its promises and parameters and responsibilities for us. It's a far bigger deal than many of us realize. So let me read our passage for today. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, let me suggest three headings for us. If you're a note taker, you might want to write these down. There's first the proclamation of the Christ as we retrace our steps from last week, verses 13 to 17. Again, in verse 15, Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? A very important question. A question to which we'd all do very well to give attention and thought. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you have an answer for that? And are you confident in that answer? If not, may I suggest leaning on Peter's answer to that question, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ. It means Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen king, the final king. It means the promised one, the one that was anticipated throughout Old Testament days until his birth and arrival in what we call the New Testament. It's the conclusion of the story. It's the answer. All that is wrapped up in that one word, Christ, Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. Not something less than God as the Son of God, but God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Well, these things about Jesus said and spoken by Peter first in Matthew, these things are right. And Peter is told by Jesus 
Verse 17, that you did not come to this understanding of me based on your intelligence or your religious heritage, but only because God the Father supernaturally revealed this identity of Jesus to Peter. Now, before we move on to our next section, I want you just to notice the end of our passage down in verse 20. In light of the fact that Peter just confessed Jesus as the Christ, we might find it curious that in verse 20, Jesus then strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. You probably didn't see that coming, did you? You'd expect Jesus to say, you got it right, now go tell the world. Start spreading news. Well, some scholars refer to this thing as the messianic secret. Here's what's behind it. At least two things are behind it. Number one, most people in Judaism in these days had a wrong idea about what kind of Messiah would come. They expected a warrior king who would wipe out all geopolitical enemies of Israel, especially Rome, who was occupying their land in those days. Well, Jesus is not that kind of Messiah, at least not in his first coming. He'll be that kind of Messiah when he comes again, but not in his first coming. And so Jesus did not want to whip up the wrong kind of messianic fervor. So he kept this word, Christ, on the DL for a while. But a second reason for Jesus saying this in verse 20 is that later on in the story, when Jesus does go more public with his identity, this would be Matthew 21 and following, we are then only a le less than a week away from Jesus being crucified. That's how fast it moves. Jesus' death has to happen at the right time, according to the plan of God. So in Matthew 16, in our passage, Jesus is keeping wraps on his identity for now to keep the opposition to him to uh, a simmer for now so that at the right time it reaches that, that inevitable boiling now, in our passage for next week, Jesus will be explicit as he predicts his death, burial, and resurrection that's coming. But here already in this messianic secret of verse 20, the writing is on the wall. Jesus is keeping uh, a, a damper upon his identity, at least publicly speaking, because opposition to him will grow Deadly, fierce, very soon. But on this confession that Peter makes back in verse 16, it's on that basis that Jesus then explains the rights and responsibilities of really everyone who would later come to confess the same thing. So notice, there's an important connection between Peter's confession and then immediately what follows, which we've been calling the charter of the church. 
So now secondly, a second heading for you is the promise for the church. Here's the promise, verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there are a lot of words and metaphors, images in verse 18 and also in 19. Words and images that need explanation. They need defining. And there's often been an enormous amount of debate about what they mean. And so just know that this is thickly worded stuff. Uh, if you were hoping for a nice just story from the Bible today, this isn't it. In the middle of a story, Jesus stops to give a charter. And like reading a charter or any bill of rights or something like that, every word counts, every word has been debated, and every word, for those who are concerned, need to give careful attention. So, We'll pick this apart. And let's start with the low-hanging fruit, not, not follow it in the order that we find in our text. Let's take this low-hanging fruit, this word church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And that is the first mention of this word church in Matthew and, of course, in the New Testament. Jesus, before this, has spoken of his followers he's spoken of disciples but here he uses this word that later the whole new testament speaks of so freely so frequently a word that most christians are quite used to yes but here it's the first mention so would the disciples have any idea what this word church was about as they're hearing it from the first time from jesus's lips well, some idea, yeah. In the Old Testament, we find this language, the assembly of Israel, or the assembly of the congregation of the Lord, things like that. Now, that English word, assembly, in the Old Testament, in our English Bibles, well, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that's used here in Matthew 16, 18. If you've been a Christian for a while, you probably actually heard this Greek word, ekklesia, ekklesia. Translated church in the New Testament, translated assembly in the Old Testament, that word church means a gathering, an assembly, people coming together. And so a church is not a building. This is the place where Desert Springs Church, the people, meet. It's nice to have a place to meet. And our generous members have provided this for us, and future generations even. So the word church here is put, notice, with this word used by Jesus, this little word, my. Jesus takes this word, this language from the Old Testament, like assembly, he puts a twist on it, speaking not of the assembly of Israel or the assembly of the Lord, but 
my church, my assembly, my gathering. Jesus is building, that's what we'll talk about in a bit, he's building a body, a church, a people identified by what? Not by their ethnicity, not by their geography, but by their connection to him. My church, my gathering, my people. And sure enough, as we read on in the New Testament, we start to see that this is abundantly clear. This is the plan of God. Jesus' people are a global people. This, this news of him is supposed to spread in the world. That's how it got here to the United States these days. That's why we're here. No, it's not made up of a, a single ethnicity, but it's from all over and from every kind of people. Jesus is building this thing, these people, his church. Now here we call this the universal church. In verse 18, Jesus is speaking of the universal church. Uh, other letters later on in the New Testament are written to local churches like this one. We didn't get any letters from Jesus except the ones we have here in the Bible that were written for other churches. But we are like those other churches. We're a local church, but these local churches all over time, all over the centuries since Jesus walked this earth, they make up this universal church, big picture church. Now, keep in mind that local churches will come and go. This promise here that Jesus will build his church and nothing will prevail against it. It's not necessarily a promise for every specific local church. So this church has planted other churches before. One of them didn't survive. The other one is flourishing. There's a perfect example. But what Jesus is building, this universal church made up of local churches that do come and go, it's a sure thing. It will happen. It is happening. Right now, we're proof of that. The simple fact of the endurance of Christ's church these 2,000 years, despite severe opposition at times and in places, is a great evidence that this promise from Jesus was true and is being proven true day in and day out. This promise that he will build his church shouldn't breed a kind of laziness or apathy like, ah, nothing we're supposed to do. No, there, there are things we're supposed to do as Jesus is building his church. We'll come to those in just a bit. But Jesus is building his church. Notice he's doing the building. It's his project. He's building it by adding more people into it day by day. And he's building it by strengthening it week in and week out. And it's his church. Just keep that in mind. It's not, it's not your church. It's not my church. It's not even Peter's church. It's Jesus' church. I'd encourage you later this week or perhaps in your community group, just to take those words, I will build my church, and just give specific meditation to each one of the words. I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build my 
church. I will build my church. It's so rich. And then notice the phrase that follows. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now you might think the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Okay, I'm picturing this. The gates, gates are defensive mechanisms, right? You don't take gates and ram them towards people. You, you set up a fortress, you sit there, you put up gates to keep people out. And so this is saying that the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus building his church. That implies, you might think, the church is on the offensive against Satan and his minions. That the church is charging hell like, like helms deep in Lord of the Rings. And, and I too have thought like that before. But after some more careful study this week, I'd, I'd like to propose something different, a different word picture here. You see, the gates of hell, as it says here, really, it's gates of Hades that's important. In, in the Old Testament, the equivalent was gates of Sheol, the place of the dead. That language, gates of Hades, gates of Sheol, that's a word picture for death. So it's in Job 17, verse 16, and it's in Isaiah 38, verse 10. I think it's also in Psalm 9. There the imagery is clear that death is like this. It has gates, and once you're in death, you're locked in, and the gates are closed. It's final. There's no getting out. You're behind the bars of death. So the gates of Hades, I think here in Matthew 16, refers not to hell, but to death. It's saying death will not prevail against the church. Death's gates won't lock up Christ's church. Because for the Christian, even dying, they don't die. Because they got eternal life on account of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus will build his church and even death, which swallows up everything and everyone, it seems. Even death will not prevail over the church. In fact, death will be swallowed up in Jesus' resurrection. It's just double surety. I will build my church. Death and its gates won't prevail against it. But now for the even more tricky part, at the beginning of verse 18, it's about Peter and the rock. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What does that mean? Peter's name means rock. And so there seems to be some play on words connecting Peter and the rock. It would sound like this if we're using a Greek word here or there in the sentence. You are Petros. And on this Petra, I will build my church. You hear it, right? So Peter, I think, is the rock. And I know the Roman Catholic Church takes that to mean that there has been an unending succession of Peters or popes ever since this time. They would say, yes, Jesus 
builds his church upon Peter and every pope that came after Peter. I, I think that's wrong. I wouldn't be here right now if I thought that was right. I'd be in a Roman Catholic church. But I think Peter can be seen as the rock without believing in apostolic succession, without believing in the, the papacy, as Rome calls it. Peter had a unique role in the early church, but not a pope-like role. He wasn't infallible. In just a couple verses, Jesus will call him Satan. Talk about papal infallibility. Or Paul rebuked Peter publicly in Galatians 2 because of Peter's public hypocrisy. Or in the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, yes, Peter spoke up and he said some really good things, but he, but he didn't convene the council like popes would, or, or he didn't lead it. He, he, he didn't even make the closing argument. He didn't speak a decision. It was, it was decided together among those apostles there. And when Peter writes 1 Peter and he addresses elders in the church there, he speaks of himself as a Fellow elder, not very Pope-like. You get the point, right? But Peter was the rock upon which Jesus would begin to build his church. He would be the first stone laid down in this structure, spiritual structure that Jesus is building. I mean, after all, not only is it Peter's confession that draws out Jesus' charter and this promise for the church. But remember that in Acts, the book of Acts, Peter was the one to preach that first sermon on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. Remember that Peter is really sort of the, the, the hero, humanly speaking, of the whole first half of the book of Acts. Remember, he was the instrument in Acts chapter 10 whereby the gospel went to the Gentiles. Peter's, Peter's a big deal. It's okay to say that. And, and yet we could add some nuance to that. We could say that Peter, along with the other apostles, according to Ephesians 2, verse 20, which Alyssa read for us earlier, there it says that the household of God was built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Apostles. Peter and the rest. Not just Peter. So Peter appears to function as this Important first step in the building project. But the apostles as a whole are a foundation for the church. They, they laid a foundation not only in their preaching and in their early church planting, but also in the writing of the New Testament scriptures. That's our foundation. But we have to move on. Jesus moves on. And so thirdly, there's the power of the keys. The power of the keys is spoken of next. In verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's talk about 
keys. What do keys do? They lock and unlock. They, they open and close. They, they, they let in and they lock out. There's authority behind this idea of keys. Authority is given when keys are handed over. I remember when I started working at this church almost 20 years ago now. I remember on my first day, I didn't have keys. My first day going to the office, I walked up and I rang the bell. I didn't have a fob. But then I had a job and so they gave me a master key and a fob. They entrusted me with these things. My, I remember my kids, just toddlers then, being very impressed that I had a master key that would open every door of the church. Well, they understood the concept that keys provide rights and responsibilities and privileges. Isn't that why little kids want their own keys? Right? Do, do parents still do this? At some point, your kid asks for their own keys, and you go looking in the house for these keys that don't go to anything anymore. You sold this car. You don't live in that house anymore. You change the locks on the garage. What do we do with these keys? Ah, you kept them for this day when you would hand little Sally her own key ring, and then she would take her little key and put it into her little tyke push car and then pretend to start it up. Brum, brum. Well, kids understand that keys are impressive, powerful things. And of course, the keys that we give little toddlers aren't powerful. They don't work. But the keys of Matthew 16, 19 do work. And they are important. These are the keys of what? The kingdom of heaven. They open and shut the doors to the kingdom of heaven. Which means these keys let people in and or lock people out. It's about people, remember? It's not a literal door. There's not literal keys. Jesus is building a church, a church of Gathered people. So these keys mean that some will be brought in, others will remain out. This is the language of binding and loosing. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. This is the, the tying up and the, the letting loose. And Peter and the apostles can exercise this kind of authority. To use these kinds of keys to let in, to lock out. Because they've discovered the litmus test. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. They've come to believe and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's what they should look for as they let in or lock out of the kingdom of heaven. Now you might stop here and say, wait a minute, are you saying that Peter or the apostles or any other mere mortal decides who gets into heaven? Well, 
the Greek grammar here is it's unusual, um, but it says something really important without getting too deep into the weeds. There's this kind of mix of past tense and future tense going on with this saying, whatever you bind shall be bound in heaven. The, the New American Standard translation, I think, gets it right when it says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Now, we don't talk that way. It doesn't make any sense to us, right? Future and past tense at once, but, but, but that's what's going on here. It's not that Peter or the apostles or anyone else gets to decide who is in and who is out, but they will declare who is in and who is out. They will represent what is already a heavenly reality discerned by whether people confess Christ or reject Christ. So just, just picture it. Take a, a scene from the, the book of Acts where the gospel is preached and a response is called for and some will respond affirmingly and some will respond oppositionally. And then there will be either a response from the one proclaiming a response of affirmation or condemnation, whether they believe or not believed. And, and so, so if there's belief in, in the true Christ, then, then a preacher like Peter could say, brother, you're in. You're good. Welcome. And yet, after preaching the gospel, if someone says, you speak nonsense, Peter can rightly say, you are not in yet. I hope you're in someday, but you are not in right now. Do not think you're in. Again, a person saying that isn't making it so, they're just recognizing it so. These keys also have the power to release. They have the power to release those who we once thought to be in but then they prove that they really never were in. For this, I need you to turn to Matthew chapter 18, just two chapters later. We'll come to Matthew 18 soon in our study of Matthew, but we really need to glance at it now to see how it helps us understand Matthew 16. Now, notice in verse 18, we have this language. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's our language in Matthew 16. That's why we have to turn to Matthew 18 to see if it'll make more sense of things there. Well, in the verses earlier, and I won't go into those. We'll get into them when we get to Matthew 18. But in the, the verses before this, Jesus explains the necessary steps involved when in the church, a church like this, someone has confessed Christ, been baptized, been appearing to live out life in Christ with the church for some time, but then continues in sin for a season, a long season, 
without repentance. Jesus says that that needs to be confronted. That person needs to be helped. And so at first, make it a one-on-one conversation. And if that doesn't work, then, then get two or three others to go with you and then plead with that person to, to repent and to, to abandon that sin. And then when they won't do that, notice, what does it say? Verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, let him be to you as an unbeliever. So who is the one who says it? Who's the one who determines this person is not a Christian? This person is not in. We thought they were in. But obviously, with this much sin and unrepentance for this long, you are not in. Who says that? Well, notice, the buck stops with the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you all. It's in the plural there. In fact, it's interesting that in Matthew 16, it's in the singular because Jesus is addressing Peter. And so he says, whatever you, singular, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. But here in Matthew 18, the same language is used except the yous are in plural. Whatever you all bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. So what Jesus gave Peter and the other apostles in Matthew 16 by way of a charter for the church, that authority extends down through the ages all over the world to local churches and the people, the gathering, the assembly of those people. Jonathan Lehman who is the editor for Nine Marks Ministries, he he speaks of uh, the who and the what of the gospel. The who and the what. You see, the church as a whole has the responsibility to agree on what the gospel is. And what we've agreed to here at Desert Springs Church is expressed in our statement of faith. You can find that on our website. Click beliefs, then statement of faith, This is what we confess together. It's the what of the gospel. But the church as a whole also has the responsibility to affirm the who of the gospel. Who's got it? Not who's got it no matter where they live. No, like in our proximity, the people we're identifying with, the people who may or may not covenant with us in this confession and living out the Christian life together, these people in this local church, we're we're vouching for them. That's the, the who of the gospel. That's the who of the covenant community. And the elders of the church teach on what the gospel is, and the elders of the church help lead out in who we should consider as part of this covenant fellowship. But it is the church as a whole that is finally responsible for turning the keys. Now, in the few minutes that I have left, I want to just suggest 
several ways in which a church like ours uses the keys of the kingdom. What does it mean? How do they get used? Well, it's starting on a really informal level. This is, in, this is our gospel witness stuff. As you have gospel conversations and someone is beginning to believe, you're beginning to open the door. It doesn't stop there, but, but that, is, that is kingdom work. That is, that is keys stuff. It's not only private gospel conversations, but public proclamation like I'm trying to do right now. The keys of the kingdom are, are, are partly reflected in just us gathering. And so if you're not a member of this church, you're welcome to be here. You're welcome to be here as long as you want to be here. Uh, but, but this is a meeting of Desert Springs Church that you're kind of visiting. And we're getting together for, for us, for Jesus. We're getting together to do Hebrews 10 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. It's, it's reflected in our missions work. As we send missionaries and support them, and they proclaim the gospel where they are, in dark places without the gospel, their little outposts of the kingdom are, are being set up. It's... It's the keys kind of work that we'll get to see in baptisms in just a few minutes. Informally, it's, it's the stuff of community groups as you share life together. As you express concern to a wayward brother or sister, there's a sense in which, in a loving way, it's just a little jingling of the keys. Come on, man. Come on. ding ling ling don't do that. Don't go any further, right? It's informal church membership. I said formal church membership. We talked about a membership class earlier. You might wonder, is church membership in the Bible? Well, yes and no. What's in the Bible in explicit and clear is Christians are overtly identifying themselves with a group of Christians who will live out what the Bible says Christians should do. And they should do it together. So in Acts 2, it was the 3,000 that were, you know, believing, baptized, and added to the church that day. So at Desert Springs, with a church our size in these days, we need some mechanisms to know who that is, who's in, who wants to do church with us, not just come to a church every now and then. And so for us, that means a membership class and, and baptism, if you're not already baptized. It means uh, sitting down with one of our elders where they're going to ask you to, to hear your confession of the Christ. What do you believe about the gospel? And then, and then that elder will at a members meeting, recommend um, that person to membership in our church and our, and our body, our members there will affirm that person and we will welcome them into covenant fellowship. And we do that kind of work of admitting people where an elder recommends someone to membership, to the membership of, the, of Desert Springs Church. We do that at a members meeting 
like we have this coming Wednesday. And I want to stress to you, especially if you're a member of this church, I want to stress to you the importance of members' meetings. They might seem insignificant, quite optional, or maybe interesting if there's going to be an update that perks your specific interest. Huh, church plant? Chase mentioned something about that. I think I'll go to that members' meeting. Or how about this? This is where we do our most important business as a church. Imagine that we are ambassadors of heaven, and each local church is like an embassy of a foreign country. Well, imagine then that members' meetings are like a most important deliberative body politic of that embassy making decisions representing heaven on the ground level. That's what your yays and nays represented a members meeting, not rubber stamps. It's doing the kingdom work. It's, it's the keys of the kingdom stuff. Are you kidding? We're ambassadors. And too often, we just rather stay home Wednesdays at 6.30 to do anything other than come and pick up the keys of the kingdom once again to turn them on Jesus' behalf, representing heaven itself. I wonder today, will you give some attention to just where you need to make some changes Perhaps join a church, perhaps get baptized, perhaps, perhaps sign up for the, the members meeting, or the, uh, rather the members class coming up, or, or simply put the quarterly members meetings on your calendar and just plan on it like you plan other things, like vacations or other things. Not, not that you can never miss, but we should want to be there. Because Jesus is building his church, and that's sure, and he's doing it through people like us. It's astounding. Well, let's pray and ask for his help to believe it and live in light of this great charter. Yes, Lord Jesus, help us, we pray, to live out what you've called us to do here in this rich, thick passage. Give us courage to do what you've called us to do. Give us Give us joy in what you've called us to do because you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Savior, the King, and our Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.